Where the Pearl River estuary narrows, a series of towns, now merged into one indistinguishable city, spread themselves from the edge of the eastern bank. This is Dongguan, sitting between the cities of Shenzhen to the south and the provincial capital, Guangzhou, to the north. Deng did not visit Dongguan on his southern tour of 1992, but the city was a key part of Guangdong's remarkable economic success in the reform and opening period. It became known as the factory of the world, making cheap clothes, shoes and toys, its white-tiled factories staffed by migrant workers who made up as much as two-thirds of the city's population. In her 2008 book Factory Girls, Leslie Chang wrote, The best way to understand the city of Dongguan is to walk it. Bank headquarters of mirrored glass tower over side street shops selling motorcycle parts and plastic pipes and dental services. Roads are ten lanes wide, high-speed highways in place of city streets. Migrants walk along the shoulders carrying suitcases or bedding, while buses and trucks bear down from behind. Everywhere is construction and motion, jackhammers and motorcycles, drills and dust. At street level, the noise is deafening. The roads are wide and well paved, but there are no pedestrian lights or crosswalks. This is a city built for machines, not people. This is the Southern Tour podcast, and I'm your host, Jonathan Chatwin, exploring the legacy of Deng Xiaoping's legendary journey to the South in 1992. Today, we're joined by Dexter Roberts to take a trip to Dongguan. Dexter is author of a recent book called The Myth of Chinese Capitalism, The Worker, The Factory and the Future of the World. He was China Bureau Chief and Asia News Editor at Bloomberg Businessweek and was based in Beijing for more than two decades. Hi, Dexter. Welcome to the show. Hi, Jonathan. Great to be here. Yeah, great to have you. We're taking a bit of a diversion today from the route of Deng Xiaoping's Southern Tour in, in 92. And we're we're setting off from from Shenzhen North towards uh, a, a less glamorous cousin, I suppose we could think of it as Dongguan, the which now I think is still the fourth largest export region in in China, but I think it's fair to say is is less well known than some of the other coastal economic powerhouses and certainly other kind of prominent cities in the Pearl River Delta. I wonder if we could start just by sort of giving listeners a, an idea of, of of where Dongguan is and. And, and what it's like on, on the ground. Yeah, well, obviously, it, I completely agree. It is less well-known. Although the interesting thing is if you talk to a certain class of Taiwanese factory owner or Hong Kong factory owner, Dongguan is, is, is very, very familiar for obvious reasons. They've been doing running their factories there for many, many years. Dongguan, it's sort of roughly midway up the Pearl River between Shenzhen and and the provincial capital of Guangzhou. It's very large. I think it's something like 17,000 square kilometers and really is more of an agglomeration of, of, of different towns or districts, all of which traditional over the last couple decades have become home to certain industries. So you've mm-hmm. got you've got a furniture making district called Dalingshan. You've got your, you know, your electronics districts, Chang'an and Human. You've got your district that traditionally always made, you know, for the last couple of decades anyway, has made shoes, which is Hojie, 
So it's, it's, it's a funny place. It's very, very, as you say, less well-known and, and feels very different, I would say, from a lot of those other Pearl River Delta cities. Yeah, it's sort of a, a city in, in search of a center in some ways, isn't it? There's not a, an easily definable kind of central part of it. And, and spreading out, you know, as you, as you travel between Shenzhen and, and Guangzhou, it is, well, all the cities around the Pearl River Delta now are kind of merging into one. And, and you get this sense, don't you, of just the kind of low-level urban sprawl of the place. It's a factory town, so a lot of the compounds are kind of, as I say, low-rise factories with dormitories. Has it started to to change? Uh, obviously, Shenzhen's famous for its uh, kind of its skyline. Has it started to change in, in recent years and, and, and kind of copy some of the more glamorous architecture of its, of its near neighbours? Well, I think you're right. There really isn't uh, a proper downtown. The closest thing that uh, Dongguan has to that is the Dongchang district, which does have one very notable skyscraper. I think it's 68 stories or 68 floors high. And it was built by the Taiwanese Businessmen's Association. And it's where they have their Dongguan headquarters. And now today you've actually got sort of the, the luxury uh, handbag and, 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 and different brands that you would find in other cities around China catering to the better off. And it sort of is, in effect, downtown, uh, the, probably the, the most money in, the, in Dongguan, in the sprawling Dongguan, is there. And such in worlds away, obviously, from example, Hojie, which is one of the early places that factory owners came in. And with the shoe, the shoe business making mm. shoes. And again, it's just one last thing. I mean, it's very sprawling, as you said. I it just reminds me that when I would go to Dongguan and 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 try to decide where to fly in, uh, mm. usually it was flying into Shenzhen. And you have you have districts of Dongguan that are right next to the Shenzhen airport, just just mm. north. But there are other districts that are far, far closer to Guangdong. I mean, I'm sorry, to Guangzhou. So mm. uh, sometimes I would fly into the Guangzhou airport. I would the, I'd first have to figure out uh, what factory district I was going to and which airport it was closer to. <laughs> yeah, and, and one of the reasons um, I was really interested to talk to you about Dongguan is that you've been going there for a long time, certainly by sort of China standards. Your book, which I really enjoyed, the, the beginning section of that dates from the year 2000, so the, the year before China joined the, the WTO. And I just wonder how different it felt back then. Yeah, so it, very different. <laughs> I, think, I think you're right. Either 99 or 2000 was probably my first visit to Dongguan. I'd been in Guangdong a few years earlier in the late 90s. But I made it to Dongguan in, definitely in 2000. It was really, again, as you say, one year before China entered the World Trade Organization. It was already very much a factory, a destination for factory owners coming mm. from Hong Kong and increasingly from Taiwan. But it was at a much smaller scale. I remember on that first visit, I was actually focusing on the, the, the movement of all these Taiwanese factory bosses that were coming into Dongguan in part in preparation for uh, China's entry to the World Trade Organization, knowing that, that tariffs would be slashed and China, would, and China mm -hmm. overall would become a much more important export platform. So anyway, it was very different, sort of a rough and tumble town, uh, huge distinctions between the factory owners, again, mainly from Taiwan and Hong Kong who lived in 
these gated compounds, often mm-hmm. in very, very, you know, quite palatial surroundings. And then the migrant workers who came to work in the factories, who, by the way, made up about three times, about three times larger than the permanent population mm-hmm. and living in these very, very unpleasant factory dormitories, usually 12 to 12 workers to a room in bunk beds, six bunk beds, no air conditioning, and not very pleasant. So a real, real obvious distinction between the, the factory managers and the workers back then. And, and presumably, I mean, as you say, a lot of the factories were owned by Taiwanese or Hong Kong companies. Presumably, part of the attraction was not just with the ascension to the WTO, reduced tariffs, the, the, the local government, I presume, were offering some of the same kind of financial breaks that other parts of, of, of the Pearl River Delta were at that time. They absolutely were. So the local government was extremely welcoming to the new investors coming from Taiwan and Hong Kong. They were offering you know, tax breaks near free land in some cases to build the factories. And then really crucially, I mean, first of all, this is this is several years before China got one of its one of its stronger iterations of a labor law. I think mm. it didn't come until 2003. And so crucially, the local governments in many cases were willing to tolerate, you know, near sweatshop conditions that mm. many of these factories, you know, the, the conditions in many of these factories that meant paying workers very little, reducing their their take home by penalizing them. There are all sorts mm-hmm. of, of of infractions that workers could be could could be you know they de- deduct from their salaries if they use the mm-hmm. restroom too much or if they were you know, a minute late to the to the the factory line. And these were almost used as they were used as a way in some cases to actually reduce what the factory managers paid to the workers. So it was, uh, I think I, I talk in my book about this almost symbiotic relationship between the local government and the factory managers. Factory managers were there for low costs, mm-hmm. as you say, even despite or before WTO became a, a thing, they were coming there because of, they were fle- you know leaving behind rising labor costs in places like Hong Kong and Taiwan and mm-hmm. coming there you know, for low costs and above all for low worker or low or low wage costs and in, in those days was it it was mainly clothes shoes that, that sort of thing handbags right that they were manufacturing that's right it was very low end and so one of the biggest most sort of vibrant early factory zones again was in this uh town called hojia which was a shoe a shoemaking district as you know much of that is now left for southeast mm. asia and other parts of the world as costs have gone up. Like some of the other parts of the Pearl River Delta, the the sort of narrative of of Dongguan is that it's a place that kind of symbolizes China's economic transformation and and kind of came from nothing. You know, Shenzhen, there is the famously parroted uh, myth that it grew up out of a little fishing village. And we talked to Juan Du a few weeks ago, and we were talking about how actually how long the history, the economic uh, and cultural history of, of, of what is now Shenzhen is stretching back into, you know, centuries of the salt trade, she she discovered in her research. And, and, and Dongguan, you know, similarly, it's not a tabula rasa. There was you know, agriculture there, obviously, but also it had a pretty important role, didn't it, in 
in China's more sort of recent international history with the with, with the kickstarting of of the of the Opium War. Yeah, no, I think that's that is a, a myth that we hear about the whole Pearl River Delta, as you've as you've just alluded to this idea that it was that it was historyless, and obviously that is not the case. I mean, every Chinese school kid learns about uh, Lin Zexu, the the commissioner who came down there and was sent by the emperor, the Daoguang Emperor, to mm. to Humen, which is one of the towns of Dongwan today best known for electronics production, hmm. but that's not what they learn about. They learn about uh, Lin Zexu, who indeed came down and seized uh, a tremendous amount of opium and burned it and threw it into the harbor there. And it, and it was seen as a great victory temporarily for, the, for, for China. But then, of course, we know what happened next with the launch of the opium wars and, uh, and warships coming in to punish the Chinese for... <laughs> trying to, to do away with the scourge of opium. Um, even earlier than that, Dongguan has a very long history. There is a archeological site they call the Baogong Shell Mound. And mm-hmm. uh, there are pottery shards and bones that they have collected there, which is, again, it's in the prop, Dongguan proper today. And those are, are believed to be thousands of years old. So Dongguan and, and every Dongguan resident who's not a migrant will tell you proudly that, uh, that, they, that this Dongguan was, had some of the very earliest human habitation in that part of China and in, in Guangdong province. Yeah, and I, there's a, a there's an opium war museum which, uh, if you want to feel bad about being British, is <laughs> it's an interesting place to visit. Yeah. Bringing it a little bit more up to date, in your book you talk about the fact that the sort of township or the municipality was was formed in in 1985, and I was looking up some of the the kind of growth figures, and and even by the standards of other parts of of Guangdong, it was astonishing average annual growth rate of 14% between 78 when uh, sort of reform and opening begins and 1997. This, you know, these are are very impressive percentage figures. What was your kind of knowledge of of that period of the 80s and 90s? Yeah, I think that's going quite a ways back in in its sort of factory export history. But yes, I mean, that's when Hong Kong and and I think a little bit later Taiwanese factory managers started to to come over there. It so there was investment back then, as you mentioned earlier. It was transforming an area that had been pretty agricultural: banana growing, lychee, and uh, longyan or longan, the dragon eye fruit, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is wonderful when you're visiting that part of China. So yeah, it was. It was it was changing already back then. I, as as we talked about, as you mentioned earlier, didn't show up until the late '90s, around 2000. At that point, it was uh, very well established. I think mm. there were about 40,000 Taiwanese business people, businessmen almost exclusively, uh, men almost exclusively in Dongguan. Several thousand factories already at that point. And that number was to to grow as China opened up even more and became this real global export platform with with its entry to the World Trade Organization in 2001. And I suppose if if Dongguan is known internationally, you know, I was 
doing research over the, the last few days and and pretty much all the Western newspaper coverage of the city and actually even some of the China Daily articles focused on its notoriety as, as, as a place where, as I think in one of the interviews you did recently, it's both the export and the escort capital of China and that a lot of the young women who moved to Dongguan presumably originally with aspirations of working in factories, got involved in the sex trade there. Is that still the case? I mean, when you visited in 2000 in your book, you describe aspects of that industry. How has that shifted over the last 20 years or so? Well, yeah, again, back in 2000, it was a very, uh, a very, very big industry, very sort of a blot on Dongguan. Most of the factory managers that came, came did not bring their families. It, it began to change. I remember in my on my one of my first visits in 2000, they were actually building a school so that more Taiwanese business people might bring their wives mm. and kids over. But again, the vast majority of them did not bring their families. There was the so there was a, there was an enormous, as you say, escort prostitution business there, and. In some cases, you would have you you did have young women who came who 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 came hoping to work in factories. Immediately went into that business. In mm. some cases, they would work in the factories and then and then sadly move into that business because there was mm. a possibility to make more money quickly. That did change. It took a long time, but there were a number of serious crackdowns on that on on the on the prostitution uh, industry, the business in. Dongguan over the years, they it was singled out as a as an embarrassment because it, it was so well known. Probably mm. the most notorious location for that in all of China, and also I think it was tied up in efforts to try to pull, uh, sort of put a put a clamp down on the freewheeling political culture down there. As mm. I mentioned earlier, there was a real symb- symbiotic relationship between the factory managers and the local government, they would turn a blind eye to labor regulations as they were still, Mm. as they were put into place to environmental regulations. I mean, they turn a blind eye to the prostitution industry, plenty of corruption down there. And so there was a clampdown many years later, Xi Jinping continued with that. And although I believe it still exists, it is, you know, thankfully is nothing like it was back, back those so many years ago. And I mean, it's interesting in your book, you sort of structure your your book around a family from Guizhou province, which is famously mountainous and, and poor, who are sort of drawn to Dongguan. And in a way that the, the two, Binghua village, which, which is the village they're from in Guizhou, and then Dongguan become kind of emblematic of aspects of the story of China's economic development or, or lack thereof over the last 20 years. And I think what's really interesting about Dongguan is, as we've as we've said, it started out as a kind of scrappy manufacturing town. And now in the last, you know, five or six years, the competitive edge you were mentioning of very low wages for migrant workers has, has started to evaporate. And partly that's to do with, you know, happily labor laws improving, as you, as you mentioned in, in the book. And so now I suppose Towns like Dongguan are stuck in between two things, aren't they? They're they're not able to generate perhaps the same level of of income as they used to from that sort of small, medium-sized manufacturing industry. 
but haven't transitioned yet to the kind of high tech future that the Chinese government seem to be advocating. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the the problems with the migrant worker system, as you do in your book about the the, the hukou, for example. But and how are they viewing now that workforce with regards to places like Dongguan? I mean, do they do they want them to upskill and and kind of adapt to these new theoretical high tech high tech jobs on the horizon, or do they want them to go back to the towns where they where they grew up? Yeah, that's a very good question and a big one. The, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I when I first went to Dongguan that same year, it was 2000, as I as we discussed. I also went to Guizhou, and I was working uh, sort of the 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 early the genesis of my book was on uh, these trips that I did that year, both as I said to Dongguan, also back to this village Binghua in in Guizhou. I was working on two cover stories for Business Week where I was working at the time. One was on the wealth gap. So already back then, there was growing concern amongst the leaders of China, uh, then President and Party Secretary Jiang Zemin, that Deng Xiaoping's reform and opening, you know, the trickle-down theory of let some get rich first, was not, was not happening fast enough. So the coasts were getting increasingly wealthy, but the interior places like Guizhou weren't. And so I, so I did the this wealth gap cover story. And then I went back, I went to Guizhou for that. And then went to both Dongguan and back to Guizhou later in the year for a cover story on, which I think the title was The Great Migration, looking at how young people were were leaving the poor, remoter parts of China, the hinterlands, and going to the coast for, Hmm. for factory jobs and construction jobs, mainly then. And, uh, you know, despite, just (laughs) quickly, despite the all the abuses that were part of this this process, this economic process and the sweatshops, the reality was a lot of people, including migrant workers, saw their incomes rise as they Mm -hmm. left behind subsistence agriculture and came to the cities and worked Mm -hmm. in factories. And so this was that that was certainly a, a positive thing, you know, jump forward until the last, I don't know, five or eight years or so. There, as you say, there's been this big push to basically move the economy from the old model, the factory to the world model, very much focused on exporting to one that is much more domestically driven, much more mm-hmm. reliant on the spending power of the Chinese people and and creates goods that are not distinguished by their low cost, but also by their quality. So places like Dongguan, as you say, are in a very funny place. It's it grew and thrived based on this low-cost model, which China, the leadership in China feels that they've moved beyond. And indeed, they don't really have a choice. We, you know, Today, average manufacturing wages in Mexico and Malaysia are, are lower than in China. So, so they're not competitive in that respect anymore. I think for the migrant workers, there is a huge unanswered question about what happens to them next. As the leadership in China has talked about them transitioning to much more, much more into the service sector. And indeed, mm-hmm. that's already happening. We have more migrant workers today in China working in service sector than in construction or factories. But the idea of the Chinese government is somehow that those will be higher end jobs, and they really aren't. Uh, the most popular job, and this has really become even more apparent during the pandemic, is uh, motorcycle delivery people, motorcycle mm. delivery workers. And they buzz around the cities, the, the migrant workers who used to be in factories, delivering 
food and goods to the to the, to the urbanites. It's a pretty miserable job. It's very dangerous. There's all sorts of traffic accidents involved. Mm. That's that's sort of on the service side. They're not the high value out out of jobs that the government might have wanted. The other thing is there's been this talk about as they automate the factories, which they've had to do and they've encouraged that 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 they will have ro- if you will robot technicians and this idea mm. that that some of the migrants could be trained to to actually operate the automation systems in the factories. Well, that's not happening at all. A very large number of migrants are actually going back, sometimes at the direct encouragement of these urban areas, including Dongguan, back to their villages and trying to reinvent mm. themselves. There's huge questions about how they do that as well, um, what they can do if they can become an entrepreneur back in the countryside or 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 find any kind of job at all. Yeah, and I mean, back in the in the countryside i know having visited yinan over the course of a number of years you know the sort of tourism model that that, that province represents and and i think you mentioned this in the book the, the problem with those models is they tend to be rolled out in a very crude way so that entire villages will kind of copy the model of a successful you know local town or village in trying to attract tourism to and, and, and Guizhou is, is is a place that would lend itself to to tourism right it's beautiful and and there aren't that many other potential industries that you can you can do there I mean it's it's, it's hugely mountainous for, for, for a start is yeah. is that kind of what they're, they're, they're envisaging is these migrants are going to go back to places like Guizhou and you know transform their villages and you know transform build build a build a hotel or or, or yeah. a business reliant on the tourist tourist income. Is that the idea or one of the ideas? That's very much part of Guizhou's, like Yunnan, part of their their model and their hope for the future. They will have, if you will, sort of ecotourism. The, the poorness and the remoteness of Guizhou, as you said, means there's been very little industry. And so mm. ironically now, that's a, a source of strength. You have yeah. relatively pristine environments. It's absolutely beautiful with mountains. You have, you know, it's very diverse in terms of different ethnic minorities and has great cuisine as well. So they're, they're really pushing that model. As, as you just mentioned, though, it seems like every village is trying to do it. So you, mm-hmm. you drive along outside of Guiyang into the countryside and, you know, every village has got its equivalent to bed and breakfast. They're trying to yeah. lure urbanites with money to come stay there. And, you know, the urbanites of China have a lot of other choices. Before mm. the pandemic, they were traveling the world, obviously, which mm. uh, and spending money else, you know, in other countries. Within China, they have Hainan Island and a million o- other places. So mm. you also have a phenomenon where the central government has basically ordered some of the biggest companies to invest into Places like Guizhou, all, all of the poor provinces, they've been doing that mm. for a long time. But in this case, companies like Wanda, the big real estate mall mm. and, 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 mm. and you know, theater company, which has come, come, come upon hard times recently, they, they, they've done massive tourism developments into rural Guizhou. So you'll be mm. driving along the road and village after village will have their little tourism setups that they're trying to attract people. And suddenly you'll come and there'll be a, I saw this, there'll be, there was a Wanda tourism, eco, quote unquote, ecotourism resort <laughs> built with literally, I think over a thousand different, you know, a thousand different rooms for people to stay in. Mm. And, you know, the fear, and I think it's a very real, real one is that 
that you're going to many of these places are going to be vacant and, uh, yeah. and large numbers of these returning migrants are not going to find any kind of work at all. And, and, and meanwhile, I suppose the gravitational pull of, of coastal cities is still pretty strong. But, you know, there's a there's a huge move, certainly in in the bigger cities, uh, Beijing, which I, I, I know best of, of, of Chinese cities you know, imposing caps on migrant workers uh, and, and, you know, not only that, but finding lots of ways of making it, you know, very difficult for them to live, you know, even even, even with, with the, the sec- sort of second class status they have as, uh, uh, you know, based on their hukou, the Chinese government have got very good at finding ways of dissuading migrant workers from moving to the, the sort of the most economically successful cities around China. So it does seem, as you say, that, that, they're, that they're stuck between between kind of good options and i suppose you read the you know the, the announcements from the chinese government and they're very big on this you know the made in china 2025 program i know the dial down the rhetoric a little bit on that but you know that is a you know domestic aimed program where they envisage becoming kind of preeminent in certain high-tech industries like yeah AI, for example, biotech, they mention a lot. And this, this, is, this is true in the rhetoric around places like Xinjiang and, and, the, and the development of the kind of integrated area around the Pearl River Delta. That seems to be the way that they want those um, cities to go. To me, having grown up in, in Britain and, and witnessed you know, the end of kind of industrialization in the 1980s and, and, and the lack of training and forethought that went into what all these people who were uh, working in industry we're going to do it seems like you know there's an obvious gap there which is which is training you know how are you going to get somebody who's used to working on a factory production line to be able to work in a you know in artificial intelligence for example that that gap seems massive are the, are the government trying to do anything you know in a, in a kind of structured way to, to help people upskill I, you know, there there are efforts, but I think there there aren't that many, and they're not large scale. I, I was always struck when I was I did in in latter years, 2017, before I left uh, in the summer of 2018, I was I was focusing a lot on the the policy that as you meant the one you mentioned, made in China 2025. A big part of it, as well as biotech and AI, was building up. First of all, a much more automated manufacturing sector, but also creating China creating its own indigenous robots so that mm. they sell their robots to the world. And I I spent quite a bit of time in Guangzhou. Guangzhou sees itself, as you may know, as a rival to Shenzhen. It's the mm. old political capital, and they hope to to particularly with Made in China 2025. I think they're a little bit resentful about the fact that Shenzhen steals all the attention, <laughs> and they're they were they you know they're the ones who are supposed to be in charge up in the provincial mm-hmm. capital. Although obviously Shenzhen is is its own separate entity. So so anyway, they had I, I I spent quite a bit of time in Guangzhou and down into Dongguan as well, talking about these plans, and not just with local officials, but with the heads of big companies. I remember talking to a top automaker, Guangzhou Auto, in Guangzhou. And they have they have very very elaborate plans about how they're going to move to automated factory lines. Uh, mm-hmm. When I would ask them, what 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 happens to the workers? Mm-hmm. They would say something typically about, oh well, we need people to you know we need technicians <laughs> to manage the robots and fix them, and so th- they'll do that. And then I mm-hmm. would say, you know, this is a workforce. 
very hardworking, relatively uneducated still. Many of the young people have dropped out of high school. What are you going to do to train them so that they're ready to somehow manage robots and, and software mm. and all this stuff? And it, the, the reaction almost was often one sort of a perplexed one, like, why are you asking mm. me that? I have a brilliant <laughs> vision of of automated factories, and I have support from the central government in the case of subsidies in many cases, and we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. And it seemed almost sufficient to just sort of throw out this idea that, oh, of course, my, you know, we do need people to manage the robots, but actually training programs. No, I didn't hear about those at all. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the rhetoric seems seems very aspirational, you know, certainly around the, the, the recent announcements around Shenzhen. It's very kind of high level buzzwordy without a lot of detail about how these, you know, how they source the workers for these industries and how that transition happens. And as you mentioned in the book, one of the reasons it's important that they find a way of transitioning these workers to better paid, better skilled jobs is because... Otherwise, they're stuck in this middle income trap, aren't they? They need to develop the domestic consumer market. And I guess even more so now, you know, looking at this you know, crazy year of 2020 that we've just lived through and, you know, on the back of the US-China trade wars, boosting domestic consumption is, is absolutely vital to China's continued success. What are their plans? How, how, are, they, how are they trying to go about doing that, cultivating this aspirational middle class that are going to buy these goods that are going to be made in, in potentially in the Pearl River Delta? Yeah, I think you're right. The, the, certainly the pandemic and even earlier with the trade war, there's been this focusing of the mind amongst China's policymakers that this goal of moving to a much more domestic driven economy has to happen much faster. And mm. now we have Xi Jinping using a new slogan, the dual circulation strategy, which it's dual because they, want, they, they say it's a nod to the fact they plan to continue to export to the world and, and have obviously a, a strong trading relationship with the world. But the real focus now is much more on trying to find ways to build up the domestic market. As I talk a lot about in my book, and you mentioned earlier, a huge obstacle to that is the HUCO or the household registration system, which as you know, today doesn't, doesn't on paper restrict where rural people or other people can live or where migrants can go, but in effect makes it very difficult for them because of the fact that their social welfare benefits, right, their health mm. or education mm. for their children is tied to the place that, that, they, that they come from, the countryside. Mm. So mm. China for, for quite a few years, at least since a big important party meeting in 2013, so seven years ago, has been talking about the, the fact that they know that in order to have a larger domestic economy, they need to reform some legacy policies. The key mm -hmm. one they see as an obstacle, and I think they're absolutely right, is the HUCO policy. It means that these migrants, when they come to the cities, they can't bring their children. They often can't bring their elderly, elderly parents. If they do bring their children, they have to put them in uh, not very high quality and often quite expensive private mm -hmm. schools. And I mean, it, it, all of this hurts their spending power. So they've been to the government in Beijing has been talking about reforming the hukou policy and directly tying to that to the need to boost domestic consumption. But what we've seen since, again, 2013, where there was a big announcement about the plans to liberalize hukou is 
uh, very, very limited progress. So they've done mm. piecemeal programs. They've opened up certain cities where, where it's easier for migrants to settle down and get the urban hookah, which would allow their children to go to the schools and their better access to the local health care. But it's very much top down. The cities they choose are often not the ones where the jobs are mm-hmm. or where the workers want to go. And as you said, big cities, the showcase cities, by and large, Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, even many of the provincial capitals have actually made it more difficult for the mm-hmm. migrants to come and settle down. And so is Dongguan still a, still a pull for migrant labor? I mean, you know, obviously, as we said, it's going through seemingly a period of of transition. But it's it's a big place. What eight million people spread across that that vast area that you, you you describe? Is it still somewhere that people are actively moving to for employment, or is that is is it less attractive than perhaps some of the other coastal cities now? I think it's losing its attraction. The there was obviously with the trade war and even earlier with with the cost going up. It reminds me, I was looking back at some of my earlier stories as a journalist, and I was writing about high labor costs in Dongguan and Guangdong in 2004, so 15 <laughs> years ago. I was mm-hmm. talking to factory owners there who were complaining about how workers were becoming expensive. And this yeah. is just this is sort of overlapped with the sweatshop era when actually there was a lot of very poorly paid workers, but costs were starting to go up. So, so, but recently with the more, much more recently with the trade war and the tariffs and now with the pandemic, I think a lot of factory managers have seen the writing on the wall, if you will, and are trying to move their, move their factories elsewhere with the low end stuff like shoes, increasingly electronics is going elsewhere. You know, places like Vietnam is a, as you know, a mm-hmm. hotbed of, mm-hmm. of Chinese and, and Taiwanese factory owners who are, who've picked up and left, left Guangdong and moved over to Vietnam. So I don't think it's nearly as much a, uh, a destination. I know the migrant worker population, I don't know the latest figures, but I know it's, it's come down. And you have on top of that, of course, the policy side, which we were just talking about, which is a concerted effort by the central government, by the provincial government, and by the municipal government in Dongguan to try to move up the value chain. And they actually mm. have in place, uh, not just in Dongguan, but many cities across China, policies that reward companies for replacing workers with robots or with yeah. automation. And uh, it's been very popular in Dongguan. So, so if you're a factory making something, you can actually get uh, a subsidy from the government if you fire workers and put in automation. <laughs> right. And is the is the idea of that to drive overall costs down in the in in the long term? Presumably, if they automate production, that 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 reduces cost. Are they aiming then to be competitive again in a, in a global market in in that manufacturing? Is that is that the reason behind the automation? I think so. I mean, they some of the senior, the very top policy aides in the government, in you know, notably Liu He, who's become Xi Jinping's right hand man on the trade mm-hmm. war. He, he, he studied in earlier years the, what happened to Japan and the, yeah. sort of the hollowing out of industry that we saw as costs went up. And so yeah. there's been a, an effort in China from the, top, the highest reaches of the government to try to avoid that fate. And they see that, yeah, their goal, absolutely, as they move towards a more service-driven economy, they want to continue to be a global manufacturer. They just want it mm. to be uh, much more automated. And the products that they make, of course, then 
they also want to be of far, far higher quality. They don't want to be shoemakers particularly mm. or toy makers mm. anymore, mm. but they, they do want to, they want to, well, they want to make robots, for example, um, they, but they, and they want to make, you know, new energy vehicles and they want to make all, all sorts of stuff. So yeah, they, they manufacturing clearly is still a part of their vision for the future. I thought we could just finish by broadening it out a little bit and talking about the, the, the Pearl River Delta area more more broadly. And, you know, it's it's an ec- economic powerhouse of, of China. And certainly in the last 18 months, you've seen the rhetoric ramping up again about this integrated, the kind of Guangdong, Hong Kong, Macau, Greater Bay Area, as they as they pithily term it. And as I mentioned earlier, when you travel around the, the Delta, it is very hard to see now where, where one town or city stops and the, the other begins. What do you think the Chinese government are aspiring to create there. I'm interested potentially in the, in the economic and, and political tensions in their ambitions. It strikes me that, that you know, part of this is to do with transforming the economy of the area. Part of it also seems to me a, a, a way of pulling some of the economic power away from, from Hong Kong in light of some of the, you know, the political protests that have been going on there. What do you make of the kind of the plans that have been mooted over the last 18 months for, for the Pearl River Delta? Well, first of all, I think there's, I mean, we have to keep in mind that, you know, between Hong Kong, Macau, and the cities of Guangdong, we're talking about vastly different legal systems, although some of those are being eroded as we speak, certainly yep. in Hong Kong and yep. Macau. So it's, it's, it's no small task. And as, as we talked about earlier, a, a good portion of it still remains sort of idealistic pronouncements by the by the various governments but there's a lot of work that they need to do ahead to actually realize this i think you're absolutely right that there is a strong political element here i mean we've there i i think the fact that we've seen the rhetoric ratcheted up as you say over the last 18 months well there's mm-hmm. a reason there, we can match that with what we've seen <laughs> in hong kong mm-hmm. with the with the anti-extradition law and in general the rising protests against Beijing's encroachment over over everything, society and law and business in Hong Kong. So I think that you know this is a strong statement, but the you know the Greater Bay Area is like the soft, <laughs> the soft face of to a degree of of something like the national security law, which is which is being yeah. used obviously clamp down and and wipe out any remaining opposition within Hong Kong. I think on the economic side. The government does feel like Hong Kong became too independent, too much its own, its own, its own creature, and tying not only not only creating these rivals in places like Shenzhen to Hong Kong that that make sort of put Hong Kong in its place. They're also making sure that Hong Kong's future is is very much even more so tied in to the future of China as a whole, and particularly. Of, of, of the Guangdong area across the border. It's much, much more difficult to speak out when your economic well-being is, is integrally tied mm-hmm. to, to, to a neighbor that's telling you what to do. And we've seen, obviously, this is nothing new. China has a long history of co-opting the mm. tycoons of, of Hong Kong and making sure that they're on its side and against mm. any push for more independence. 
Yes, I thought I, I reread your book for this discussion, and one of the things I really liked about it, actually, I think with twenty twenty, I've never felt so far away from from going back to to China. And I know I'm talking to you today, and you're in in Montana, and had spent twenty three years, I think, is that, is that right, in mainland China? Yeah. And, and one of the things I really liked about your book were the little sections, the kind of vignettes. You you, you cover a big geographical scope. It's not just about those. The, you know the the village in Guizhou and, and Dongguan. There were some of the little kind of anecdotes about some of the scrappy little towns you went to, and and your kind of just everyday experiences of visiting those places. And I just wondered how how you felt now about China. I mean, I I feel quite a sense of kind of odd nostalgia for my time there. But it's sitting presumably in a beautiful part of the world in Montana. How do you view your time in China and and, and the prospects of going back now? Definitely feelings of nostalgia. I, I try to resist those by telling myself <laughs> that I will be back in China before too long. And certainly that's my intention. But as I watch the geopolitical uh, <laughs> environment evolve and the tensions uh, between China and countries around the world, and particularly the United States, where, where I'm from and where I'm resident, I do worry that you know, things are becoming much, much more complicated the days of the days of the past, I think, are are, are rapidly vanishing mm-hmm. in China, and and for and its relationship with the world is 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 changing very very rapidly as well. So I try again, as I, <laughs> Jonathan, I try to avoid nostalgia. <laughs> I, I'm hoping uh, that I, I'm hoping to be back in the next. You know, once we have a vaccine and the world becomes yeah. a little more normal, I'm hoping to go back. I have so many friends there, including yeah. friends that I people that I've written about in my book and for people from all over the world who, who still live there. So I guess only time will tell <laughs> when, when I have that opportunity, when all of us have that opportunity again. Yeah, absolutely. Well, fingers crossed that that's sooner rather than later. And I do encourage uh, people to go out and, and, and buy a copy of Dexter's book, The Myth of Chinese Capitalism, which touches in, in greater detail on a lot of the things we've talked about uh, today. So thanks again, Dexter, for joining us. Uh, thank you very much, Jonathan. I really enjoyed this this conversation. It's a really actually great to talk about, to focus in on Dongguan, which I have to say, this is the, the first time I've, I've, I've done a, such a long conversation just on that particular city, which, which, I, which I, I, I love and I, I spent so much time in for all those more than two decades in, in China. Well, yeah, hopefully brings it to to a wider audience. And as, and as I say, if you want to learn more about it, do go and get a copy of, of the book. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Southern Tour podcast. To find out what's up next, follow me on Twitter at JM Chatwin.